Thank you for listening to the World Religions Podcast. This is recorded at Beaver Creek Church of the Nazarene in a classroom setting, so from time to time you will note that there are questions asked by the class that you may not be able to hear. Unfortunately, that is a restriction due to the nature of the podcast recording environment, and I will do my best to reproduce those questions for you so that you can hear them and engage in them, but again, from time to time, you may just not be able to hear the questions that are asked. If you would like to access the slides for this class, you may find them at slideshare.net slash jrforesteros. That's slideshare.net slash jrforesteros. All of the other episodes are also available at my blog, jrforesteros.com, and I would love to hear from you on Twitter or Facebook if you have any questions or engagement about any of these episodes. Thank you for listening, and without any further ado, here is the World Religions Podcast. Of all of the religions that we're covering, this one is probably the most consistently, openly hostile towards, not actually not just Christianity, but towards religion in general. And I found that the more confident you or I, the more confident that we are in our own beliefs, uh, the less that we feel the need to fight for it. Uh, the less secure that you are in a belief that you hold, the, the less examined it is and the more you just believe it because someone gave it to you, whether that was a pastor or a parent or a friend or a spouse or whatever, um, then the more you feel the need to fight for it and defend it because you're less confident in it. Uh, and so a lot of tonight, uh, probably uh, something that you'll be challenged with is how uh, maybe some areas where you are not particularly confident in your own understanding of what you believe as a, as a person who follows Jesus. And that's okay, that's good. Uh, the first step to getting better at that is knowing your weak spots. And so uh, we're going to be going through a lot of stuff tonight with all of that. And as we're beginning, as we always do, I want to review our approach, how we're doing this in this class. We're basing this around Paul's evangelization of the Athenians in Acts 17 at Mars Hill. And so uh, the first thing that we do is a basic introduction to the atheist worldview, history of atheism, where it came from, what what they believe. Then we're gonna talk about some areas of agreement between atheism and Orthodox Christian theology. You might be wondering if there are even any, but we'll talk about that. And then we're gonna talk about the areas of disagreement, where Orthodox Christianity and atheism part ways and why those differences matter And the goal of all of that is to equip you to build a truth-seeking relationship with a person who is an atheist, that you will feel confident in being able to build a relationship with a person who's atheist and to seek truth together, because we believe that Jesus is the truth, and so that if if we are honestly and earnestly seeking truth, then we are going to find Jesus. And so we can do that even with people who are atheists, and we can do that with confidence. So let's talk about atheism. Uh, they, common, what's, what's really fascinating about atheism uh, from the outset, and some of you may have even been wondering why we're, co- why we're talking about non-religion atheism in, an, in, an, in a religion class. I even heard a joke earlier that this one would be pretty short. Of course, you know better than that by now. Uh, but atheists, for a long time, did not, you could not talk about atheists as a group. There was no such thing as a group of atheists. There were just individual people who had a particular set of beliefs about God, Uh, but as you'll see as we move through tonight, more and more and more, atheism is becoming a movement. It's becoming an identifiable group of people who have a particular set of beliefs and practices. And so that's why we can begin to talk about atheism as a religion. See, most of us think 
by default, we think of religion mainly as just religion as a belief in God. But hopefully you've seen as we've moved through this class that religion is much, much, much more than just believing in a particular God. Uh, it, it'd probably be more accurate to say that religion is belief about God, in particular beliefs about the kind of God that there is or the character of that God or how many gods there are. Um, but religion really encompasses how we see the world, how we understand the nature of reality. And so from that perspective, we can talk about atheism as a religion, that it is a particular set of beliefs about God, namely that there is no God, right? And it makes a lot of truth claims about the nature of reality, about the, the kind of world that we live in, about our responsibility in that world. And so it's possible to compare those beliefs and practices with Christian beliefs and practices. Now, it does get tricky because atheists will not say that atheism is a religion. And if you try to have the argument with them right from the outset, it's just not going to go anywhere good. Uh, but again, you can, it can help you begin to approach an atheist person and, and begin to understand their beliefs, and it can help you compare them to your own. Uh, so hopefully it will help you with the conversation. So let's talk about the different terms that we're going to come across tonight. First of all, in our particular discussions, discussions we are theists. Theism is belief in God. If you believe in any kind of a God, you're a theist. Okay? Then an atheist is someone who believes specifically that there is no God. And that usually, that's usually accompanied by a whole bunch of other beliefs about, you know, there's no kind of supernatural at all, only things that exist or matter. We'll talk about all that in a little bit. But the strict definition of the word atheist is no God. Now, there is another whole group of people that we're not going to really touch on tonight. We'll be interacting with them more next week uh, called agnostics. And that literally means no knowledge. So they, they say they don't know. There could be a God. There might not be. We don't know. And there's all kinds of different kinds of agnostics. Some of them say, we can't know. Some of them say, well, there might be, and I just don't know, and I don't, I don't particularly want to know. But an agnostic will not say that there's no God. They'll say, ah, we don't know for sure, or we can't know for sure. Unlike an atheist who will say, we know for sure, and it's no. And then there's another term that we're not going to really run across a lot, but it's just helpful for you to know that's called non-theism, and that's just where they just don't even talk about God at all. God's just not even an issue. It doesn't come into it. Obviously, it's related to atheism, but an atheist is going to make strong, a strong stance, there is no God, and a non-theist is just going to find the whole conversation boring and not really want to engage it. Okay? So obviously, mainly tonight, we're focusing on those first two, theism, which is us, and atheism. I wonder if a lot of people before they become Christians, or maybe any religion, uh, are in that last category. They just don't, they just don't even it. think about it? They don't think about it. I mean, I, know, I, I was kind of there. Mm -hmm. uh, probably a lot of that would depend on how you're raised. Uh, if, you're, if you're raised in a religious home, even though you're not particularly religious, probably you have beliefs about it and you have to think about it because you do in your home. If you're raised maybe in a home that doesn't particularly value or emphasize that, maybe you're not. Uh, something that meant, we'll talk about the new atheists here in a little bit, but guys like Bill Nye or uh, Richard Dawkins or some of them, the, one of their, one of their uh, taglines that they like to say now is that everyone's born an atheist and you have to be taught religion. Uh, so you, you hear that kind of, that kind of uh, language. 
So, okay, let's go through a history of atheism. And again, because atheism is really just now becoming a movement, uh, you can't really talk about the history. I mean, they don't have a founder, right? They don't have a, they don't have a set of scriptures or anything like that. So it's, it's, in this way, it's really different from the other religions we've looked at. But, but we can still trace the history of Western civilization and talk about when we really started to see atheism as a movement. Uh, it might surprise you to know that the original atheists were Christians. Uh, when Christians first uh, started to uh, evangelize in ancient Rome, the Roman authorities called us atheists because we didn't believe in their gods. And so we were the non, we were the non, we were the no gods people. So they said, what are you, what are you praying to Jupiter for? What are you praying to Mars for? Those gods don't exist. And they're like, you bunch of atheists, get out of here. So that's kind of a little fun fact for you. Uh, <laughs> um, obviously, it's a little bit different from uh, atheists today, but uh, you could go all the way back there if you wanted to have fun with that. So the first thing we need to talk about is a massive, massive shift that took place in Western civilization. Uh, starting, uh, it, it, was, it was basically at the end of the Middle Ages, and it was how Europe went out of the Middle Ages and into the Enlightenment, the Renaissance. You've probably heard of those things before. So um, what, we, what we divide those two time periods into is we say that everything before the Enlightenment was the pre-modern world. And then with the Enlightenment, the Renaissance, and all of that, Industrial Revolution, these kinds of things, that was the birth of the, the modern world, or modernism. And one of, the, one of the most important differences between the pre-modern and the modern world was how we know things. Uh, the philosophical word for that is epistemology. It's the study of how do you know stuff. Okay? Now, in the pre-modern world, in pretty much every culture, the main source of knowledge was the gods. So God told you the way stuff is. Right? So how did Moses get the Ten Commandments? Well, he went up a mountain, and God said, write this stuff down. So God gave humanity knowledge. God gave humanity laws and morality. And of course, we didn't just like passively receive it. We talked about it and discussed it and teased it out and did all kinds of stuff with it, but it came from God. God was the source of revelation, source of knowledge. And again, whichever culture you were in, it was your set of gods that you believed gave you this, this revealed knowledge. Right? But in the pre-modern world, knowledge was revealed. In the modern world, then, knowledge was discovered. So this is where you have the, the beginnings of the scientific method. This is where you have really the rise of philosophy. And what you have is the source of revelation, the source of knowledge, becomes people. So it's not given to us from God anymore. It's revealed. We can discover it. We can think about it. We can use reason and logic to figure it out. And the main source of knowledge is no longer God. Now it's us, humanity. Okay? And that, that's, one of, that's one of the most important shifts in emphasis from the pre-modern world to the modern era. So what are some of the, I want to go through some of the highlight, the historical highlights that just help us get a sense of this time period. Uh, it all, it, it didn't really start with the Protestant Reformation, but that was one of the biggest initial moments because the Protestant Reformation, particularly for Western Europe, fractured the church. The church was no longer this huge monolithic keeper of knowledge. Now all of a sudden, the church was fighting over what was true and how you interpreted the Bible. And so what was, what was before considered to be um, sacred and unquestionable, all of a sudden now the, the people who were telling us that were fighting over that. And so it, it made people start to, well, well now wait a second. 
if they don't even have it together, how do we know that that's really the truth? Right? Again, some of the similar to some, some of those questions that many of you were talking about at the beginning. Well, how do, how do we know then? And so for the next 200 years, there was just this explosion of philosophical and scientific inquiry. Uh, one of the most famous and really a person who stands as a good example of this entire era was Rene Descartes. And you have probably heard the phrase cogito ergo sum. It's Latin for I think, therefore I am. Now this is a huge uh, change because Descartes was trying to say, okay, how do I know anything? How do I know? I mean, I can doubt all of this stuff. So he decided to set out in a very rigorous and scientific manner to doubt everything that he could possibly doubt. So he said, well, I see stuff, but how do I know it's real? Because my eyes have played tricks on me before, so I don't know, maybe they're playing tricks on me now. So I can't trust what I see. And he went, you know, went through all that, and he was like, how do, I, how do I know for sure that there's a God? Well, I mean, sometimes I feel God's there, sometimes I don't. I don't know, like, I can doubt that. And he got all the way down to the only thing that he couldn't doubt was his, that he was doubting. He said, well, I can't doubt that I'm doubting. So that, that proves that there's something that's real, and it's that I'm thinking. And so he said, I think, and the fact that I'm thinking proves that I exist. I can't doubt my own thought process, so I think, therefore I am. That is a huge change from the pre-modern idea that we know stuff because God told us. Descartes said, well, I can't trust God. I've got to figure out some other place to base my knowledge. So I'm going I'm I'm to peel everything away until I can't peel anything else away. And what he was left with was human reason. Human reason is how I know stuff. That's the only thing I can trust. And then, so then he started trying to build things back up on human reason, but he always, that was his foundation. And Descartes was a Christian. And so he, if you read, if you read through his whole all of his writings, you see how he justifies belief in God based on his own reason. That, that's a big important point, that at, the, that at the bottom of it all was Descartes' own thinking. Uh, Descartes is also the one who really sort of uh, formalized the scientific method, which people had been using versions of the scientific method, this idea of testing things and looking at the results and going back into, I mean, they had been using versions of that at least since the ancient Greeks. Right, we got guys like Archimedes who figured out the circumference of the earth and stuff like that. So I mean, it's not like science was the, it's not like we didn't ever know anything until the Enlightenment. But in the Enlightenment, it was when it got really, really formalized. And guys like Descartes were the ones who laid out all of the rules that you all probably had to learn in grade school. Where first, you ask a question, and then you make a hypothesis, and then you set up an experiment. You know, that, that whole process was a child of the Enlightenment. It became really firm and really established. And so during this time, there were just all kinds of scientific breakthroughs. And that created a big problem for a lot of church leaders. Uh, you've all probably heard of Galileo. You know that Galileo used scientific reasoning, human logic, to figure out that the Earth was not the center of the universe, not even the center of the solar system, right? And you had a big conflict. Now, again, Galileo was a Christian. We had a big conflict with the established church because the Bible is a pre-modern document. It was not written according to scientific principles. And so when you read things in the Bible, it makes it seem like the earth is the center of the universe. Like it says things like the sun rose. And if you're taking it super literally, well, that means that the earth's the center and that the sun goes around the earth because how can it rise unless it's, unless it's going around the earth? And so when Galileo came along and he said, you know, guys, I, based on what I can figure out, that's all wrong. And actually, the universe looks a little bit more like this, where the sun's in the middle and we go around the sun. And Christian leaders were threatened by that. They all of a sudden were pitting 
faith against science. And they said, okay, well, we have, we have this revealed truth, and then we have your human reason, and you're contradicting the Bible. And so you know that that was not our brightest moment. Uh, we censored Galileo and forced him to renounce his claims unless he wanted to be uh, executed, and so he sort of did. And so that, that sort of, that was like the, the battle lines had been drawn from that point forward. And so for a, lot of the, for a lot of the next several hundred years, there was this tension between science and human reason and then scriptures. And it, 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 if you ever study that whole period, you see that there's lots of just crazy stuff going on in there. Um, now, the problem with that is that that established a, an unfortunate dichotomy between science and faith that I still encounter today when I'm talking with Christians or atheists. Uh, and what it gets called these days, you'll hear, this, you'll hear this phrase, it gets called the God of the gaps. And it goes like this. We think, we think this is the false dichotomy, we think that science and, and religion are trying to answer the same question. So for instance, one of the, uh, one of the things that, that religion has done in many cultures is it explains things. So in, in the ancient world, when people wondered why it rained, well, it rained because a god made it rain. So you had these fertil—you had these uh, rain gods, these fertility gods, like Thor in Viking mythology or Baal in Canaanite mythology, uh, and and that was the god who made it rain. So if you wanted your crops to get rain, you had to do these sacrifices to this god and make this god happy so that this god would give you rain. Well. In the wake of the Enlightenment, as we had the scientific method, and we started figuring out that there's actually a lot of really uh, natural processes that are involved in making it rain. And now, you know, we have weather maps today that show the high pressure and low pressure, and obviously they're right because they predict it with 100% accuracy all the time. Um, but all of a sudden, we didn't need the explanation of the rain gods anymore. We said, okay, well, we know that it's not like some god that is fat and happy because you sacrificed a goat to him, and so he decided to make it rain for you. We know that. You know, there was some stuff that happened over here, and then it did some stuff up here, and over here now it rains. And so we don't need this explanation of a god anymore. And as science progressed, as science advanced, there were fewer and fewer and fewer things that were unexplained in the natural world. Fewer and fewer places for God. And, and where there were gaps, people said, well, that's God's there. The problem is the gaps keep getting smaller and smaller and smaller as science learns more and more and more about the natural world. And so, uh, again, what you'll hear today, you'll hear atheists say that anything that you can attribute to God, we can also just say science doesn't have the answer to yet. And, and, and we can figure, we'll be able to figure it out eventually. And, and again, that's because we we had an understanding of, of God that I, I think is erroneous, that we say, well, um, again, unless, like, unless God's up at the control room flipping the levers and pushing the buttons, stuff doesn't happen, and then we figure out, no, there's like, laws that, that God set up, well, that we, that we as Christians believe God set up to make everything work. Now, what that caused, there was, there was a religion that developed out of this, and it's sort of a, it, it, it really is the perfect child of the Enlightenment, because it's sort of Christianity, but it's Christianity with this God of the gaps stuff in the middle of all of it. And it's called deism. Uh, deism, in a lot of ways, is the grandfather of atheism. And it was very, very trendy in like the 17, 1800s. You see lots and lots of uh, politicians and uh, philosophers and all kinds of people who, who were deists. And essentially, the deism 
treats the world like a giant machine, which again makes sense because it was, it was kind of conceived and birthed in the Industrial Revolution when everything was becoming mechanized. And deism says, basically, God created the world. He set it all up, and he put all these laws and rules and stuff. He got, he got it all the way it needs to be, and it sort of wound it up and let it go. And now it, now it runs by itself. And, and it, we don't need God to do it. Like, it just, it just kind of goes. And so people don't need God. We can just look at the world, and we can use our reason, and we can figure out what's right and wrong, and then that's what we do. And so essentially in deism, there's no room for God. It was this shift from a universe where God was everywhere. If you look at the ancient worldviews, right? God's, God's doing everything to a world where we're just machines. We're essentially machines that we were set up and we just kind of run. And there isn't any room for God in that. So in deism, God is this distant creator that did some stuff but is not involved in the, in the world in any way. There's no miracles, Everything is a closed system. And God does something, but whatever God does, it doesn't have anything to do with us. And you see, that's only a step or two removed from atheism. Right? It's, it's, it, and it's, it's, a, it's, it's you, can, you can just watch, if you take a long historical perspective, at humans, like, their picture of God is God is just moving further and further and further away from creation and from humanity. So, Moving on from uh, the 1600s, from Descartes and Galileo. In the 1700s, you had the Industrial and the American Revolution. Uh, the American Revolution was really important because we were an Enlightenment success story, right? And if you, even if you look at a lot of our founding documents, you hear a lot of language in them that are taken from Enlightenment philosophers like Locke and Hobbes and some of those guys, right? And found in a lot of principles that were discovered during the Enlightenment. And we, we were proof that you didn't need the divine right of kings. That you could just have a you could have a society that's founded on people. Democracy. And then of course in 1859, Charles Darwin published The Origin of the Species. Now the origin of the species is important because it provided the first uh, comprehensive, reasonable account of the origins of life without appeal to divine creation. Because up until that point, how we got here was still a big question mark, right? That was still like, well, I mean, it, that was one of the gaps. And then Darwin came along, and he proposed an idea that was reasonable enough to fill, those gap, fill that gap. Say, well, here, here's a way that it could have happened. Well, he didn't say could have happened. Here's, he said, here's the way it did happen, right? But it was, it was reasonable enough and convincing enough, compelling enough for a lot of people in that day that were kind of looking for a way to close the gap of how humans got here that it worked for. And so this, the, you started to see this, pro, this was where the shift really started to get some traction of from the best explanation for this is God to uh, the best explanation is something we just haven't figured out yet. By the time you get to the 1900s, you've got all kinds of thinkers. One of the most important and famous, we'll talk about him again a little bit later, later is a guy named Carl Sagan, uh, immensely important atheistic thinker. Uh, who denied the existence of a personal God. Uh, he was at best a sort of like quasi-deist, but even that he was like, eh. Uh, his Sagan principle is something that you will often hear repeated by atheists today. And he says, extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. And so he would consider something like the resurrection of Jesus an extraordinary claim, which it is. 
right? Saying that, that God became human and then was crucified for the sin of humanity and then ra- rose again after the, I mean, that's, we, that's so extraordinary. We say it only happened once and it's only gonna happen once. It's a, it's a unique moment in human history. So we, we would agree with him that it's extraordinary, but he would say extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. And so again, you'll hear this is a, another sort of rallying cry for a lot of atheists today. Uh, when they talk about religion, when they talk about different miracles and things like that. So let's talk about atheism today. Again, the problem, not a problem, the challenge with talking about atheism today is there are just, uh, there's not really one story, there's not really one group. Uh, all, what unites atheists is, a, is belief. It's a, a belief that there is no God. And so you have lots of different people, as we sort of already touched on, who got there lots of different ways. Uh, We are probably most familiar, particularly in the Midwest, with what we could call the post-Christian atheist. This is someone who was probably raised Christian, uh, but has left the church or they've abandoned their beliefs in God. And it's for any number of reasons, but often it's, it's disillusionment. It's a church that did not tell them that it was okay to ask questions that said, oh, you should just believe and don't question God or don't question the church or don't question the pastor or don't question me. And, uh, or sometimes it can be because the church has positioned itself as anti-science or a church cannot engage in serious criticism. And so, again, you find many, many of these kinds of atheists, particularly in the Midwest and where we're still, uh, we're still relatively culturally Christian. Uh, as you as you move out to the coasts, or if you go over to like Europe or something like that, where there have been a lot fewer Christians for a lot longer, uh, you you tend to not see this as much. Uh, and there, so there you find what I would call a cultural atheist. These would be people they were just raised atheists, and again maybe their parents were the the post-Christian atheists, and they were like, I'm raising my kid, like not to believe in God. And so this person may uh, just like a lot of cultural Christians, they may or may not have a strong commitment to atheism. It may just be all they ever really knew. They may have never questioned those beliefs, or maybe they have. Uh, You do have those non-theists, again, people that just don't care. If you ask them what they think about God, they'll probably just shrug their shoulders and go, I don't know, whatever. They just, it's not that they're really strictly atheists, it's just they really don't really ever think about it. It doesn't consume any of their time. That can be a particularly difficult group for Christians to engage because we think about God a lot and God is a big part of our lives. And so it's, it's hard for us to understand a person that just doesn't have that, even ask the same questions that we do. Uh, and then another group would be what I would call skeptics. And these would be people who they really did their homework and at the end of their homework, they became atheists. They're smart, they're well-researched, they know their stuff. Uh, typically people who I would say are skeptics, uh, at least in, in my experience, I found they're, they're, they tend to be really open to conversation. Uh, if you're interested and if you're kind and if you are willing to listen, they're happy to share their story. They're happy to share their experience. They're happy to listen to yours. Um, it's different from uh, a lot of the post-Christian atheists that I've encountered who are really, really angry and really hurt by a lot of their experiences. And they're not particularly interested in hearing what you have to say. Uh, they're not particularly interested in talking about religion unless it's in a really negative light. The skeptic would be a, a different sort of category. So the bottom line with all that is just don't assume that you know an atheist just because they tell you they're an atheist, right? Just, just like with Christians, they're a very diverse group, and so you have to build a relationship with them. You have to learn their story, and you have to earn the right to be heard. 
Okay, uh, that's sort of the end of the history part of it. Any questions or comments? That we, there was a whole lot. Probably brought back poor flashbacks from your World Civ classes in high school or college. Okay. Then let's talk about, uh, again, because atheists are non-religious, they don't have saints or they don't have scriptures, but there are people who are beginning to be, if we could use the word, revered in atheist circles. And so we can talk about writings that are important to a lot of atheists. We can talk about people who are important to a lot of atheists. Uh, you'll find several 20th century philosophers like Nietzsche and people like that who are, who are uh, ground. But one of, the, one of the very important figures of the 20th century is Madeleine Murray O'Hare. Uh, she founded the American Atheist Activist Group. This was the group that was responsible for getting Bible reading removed from public schools in 1963. Uh, she did a lot of activism, uh, did a lot of traveling and speaking, uh, and things like that. So she is a person, that, that group is still active. Uh, it's a very popular, uh, popular group with atheists. And so they would look to her and to her example and say, this is a person who inspires us to be more like her. Okay, which that's what we do with people that we would consider saints, right? Like uh, uh, Peter or Paul or... Even like, you're, you know, if you had a particular religious grandpa or something like that, and they say, I look at that person, they, they teach me how to be more like Jesus. Well, this is, that, she plays a, kind of a similar function for a lot of atheists. The other guy, again, is Carl Sagan. Uh, he wrote a lot about rationalism and science. Uh, one really important essay of his that you can find on the internet for free is called The Burden of Skepticism. And it is a very interesting read. It's a good, it's a good, description of the role that skepticism and science play in his life. Uh, and again, it's become sort of a benchmark text for a lot of atheists. Uh, now, we need to talk about the four horsemen of atheism. And yes, that's a real thing. Uh, beginning after 9-11 and gathering steam uh, for basically all of the first decade of the 2000s, uh, there is a movement that is being called the New Atheism. And it's being called New Atheism because it's markedly different in tone from what a lot of atheism has, has been before. Uh, the New Atheism basically argues that religion is an evil, that it should not be tolerated, and that it should be eliminated. And so the, the people who write these, and again, it's, it's not, this is not just Christianity. A lot of these guys will take equal opportunity pot shots at Islam, at Judaism, at Christianity, at, at any religion. For them, all religion is the enemy. Um, there are four, now there, there are lots of, lots of people who are becoming a part of this movement, uh, scientists and authors and things like that, but there are four guys who are sort of the, the leaders of the movement, and their writings are about as close to scripture as a lot of atheists have. Uh, the first one is Richard Dawkins, He's a scientist. Uh, the quote down there at the bottom, if you can't read it, says, I am against religion because it teaches us to be satisfied with not understanding the world. Uh, the next guy is Sam Harris. He's written several books, uh, uh, Letters to a Christian Nation and some others like that. Uh, he says, religious moderation is the product of secular knowledge and scriptural ignorance. So basically, if you don't know your Bible very well and you're getting a, a good education, then you're probably a, a moderate. But if you know your Bible well, then you're probably not a religious moderate because, because religion is toxic in his view. And so the more religious you are, the less moderate you are. 
Uh, the next guy is a guy named Dan Dennett. He's probably the, uh, the nicest of these four. Um, Dan Dennett. Uh, he says here, the only meaning of life worth caring about is the one that can, uh, that can withstand our efforts to examine it. And then the last guy, uh, Christopher Hitchens, just passed away recently. Uh, he had cancer. And he said, that which can be asserted without evidence can be dismissed without evidence. And there's just some, some big quotes from these guys. And again, it's hard to underestimate how influential these guys are. The books are on the top of the New York Times bestseller lists. Uh, a lot of people read them and quote them. And again, they're, they're beginning to be used uh, much in the same way a lot of Christians use our Bibles. And so that's why, again, we put scriptures in quotation marks because, again, an atheist would certainly not consider them scriptures, but they play a lot of the same roles. And it, particularly if you have an atheist friend that you're trying to build a relationship with, understanding these authors and reading some of what they have written uh, would probably go a long way to help you understand where they're coming from and be able to have a, a conversation with them. Now, let's talk about atheism and community. And I promise this will probably be the weirdest thing we talk about tonight for you. Uh, atheism has gathered ahead of steam. Uh, we're beginning to see atheist merchandise. I was Google image searching to put this, uh, the slides together and I found like an atheist apron, an atheist necktie, and like all atheist coffee mug, all of these different kinds of things. Uh, and, and all kinds of uh, atheist like artwork, like little fun internet pictures that atheists are creating. And what, again, what that should tell us is that atheists are beginning to think of themselves as a group. They're beginning to think of atheism as an identity, the same way you want to wear a cross necklace or a Christian t-shirt or have a Christian fish on your car or something like that. Atheists are feeling that same kind of attachment to their beliefs. They want to proclaim them the same way that Christians do. And that tells us, again, that atheism is starting to become more uh, than just an individual set of ideas that, that, that one person would have. Um, atheists have begun in the last several years to, be hold, to hold meetings uh, that, that don't look uh, too different from a small group meeting that you might go to. They get together and they talk about, they share their stories, they share how their weeks have been going, they maybe will read from a philosopher from one of their four horsemen or something like that, or watch a video together or something. Uh, in fact, in the last several months, the first atheist church opened in London. And uh, they meet monthly. They sing songs together like Stevie Wonder's Superstition. Uh, and they listen to teaching. Uh, and I heard that one of their sermons that's going to be coming up pretty soon is the importance of serving in your community. And again, they do all of this because they have a sense that there's something that they want. They're, they're, they have a craving for community and they, they want to be together much in the same way that you enjoy being with other people who believe the same way you do. You find that really enriching and affirming and encouraging. And, and atheists are no different. They want to be with other people who believe the way they do. And so they're beginning to form these meetings. Uh, a friend of mine was a biology student at the University of Arizona or Arizona State, one of those two. And he, while he was there, it was, I think it was Darwin's 200th birthday or some, something like that. And they threw this big birthday party for Darwin, but it was really like an atheist religious holiday. Like there was all this anti-religious propaganda and all of this kind of stuff. And, and my friend, who is a Christian, said he found it really interesting because Again, as it seemed like just as much a, viol a violation of the separation of church and state as it would have been to have like a Christmas party or something, you know, something, something like that, um, where that's increasingly disallowed and, and state. But he said, he said, what was going on was really, again, all about affirming my beliefs 
and affirming that, you know, I'm not crazy because I'm with all these other people who believe the same way I do. And it was done around uh, Darwin, who, again, I guess could be considered about as close to a saint as atheists would have it also. Uh, what's really then interesting is that the next, and then what is probably the next logical step in all of this, is that atheists are turning back to explicitly religious behaviors. So they're looking at what religious people do, like getting together and singing songs and listening to teaching or having groups like this where there's teaching. Uh, but even beyond that, uh, because they recognize that doing things like this is meaningful. And so there's a, a really interesting book that just came out uh, within the past couple of months called Religion for Atheists. And the author is a guy named Elaine de Botton. And he, he's arguing that atheists should take religious rituals, uh, like, like uh, sharing common meals together, and just basically strip the religious overtones out of them and do them still. Because, because the religious rituals have value, he says, in and of themselves. And so atheists should be doing these religious things just without the God stuff in it. And the reaction to his suggestion or like to atheist church or different things like that have been fascinating because several, well, uh, quite a number of atheists who, again, still want nothing to do with religion, think it's malarkey. You know, and they get really angry when, when someone suggests that they should act religious. But a lot of atheists are finding these kinds of things very meaningful, and they're, uh, they're be gravitating towards these kinds of practices. And so my suspicion is that over the next several years, we're going to see an, an increased presence of these kinds of atheist communities springing up. Um, I, I will be interested in what happens when the first group applies for taxism status. Uh, as a religious organization. We'll see. I'm, I'm just curious what that'll look like with the headlines and all of that. So, uh, so anyway. Okay. We're going to move into talking about some of the key beliefs of atheism. Do you have any, any questions about any of that material that we just covered? Yeah, Mia. Who wrote the book? Uh, Elaine, A-L-A-I-N, D-Botton, B-O-T-T-O-N. It's called Religion for Atheists. Okay. So the first key belief, the first important thing to understand about what atheists believe is called materialism. Materialism is the belief that only the natural world exists. Okay? All things are reducible to matter and to material property. So take gravity. Gravity is not material. You can't like reach out and touch gravity or put it in a bag or something like that. But we understand that gravity is a force that is exerted because of matter. And we have a formula for it and it works and all that. So uh, everything is either matter or an effect of matter, right? So even, uh, an atheist would say, even religious impulses, like when you're praying and you feel God's presence in that really weird, unexplainable way, or uh, when you feel emotions, or if you, you know, like the, the butterflies in your stomach when you see someone that you love, like any, any of those things that don't feel like matter, uh, they're all reducible to brain chemistry chemical reactions going on in your brain. Everything, everything, everything is reducible to matter. There is nothing that exists that is not material. Okay? The next key belief is called progressivism. This means that atheists believe that the world is getting better, that humanity is progressing. And again, you can see how that's tied into evolution, right? Things are just always getting better. Uh, in, in religious terms, which an atheist would not use, but will probably help us understand, we could say that science is the vehicle of salvation, okay? Knowledge 
is what's going to redeem the broken world. We look around and we see bad things. We see uh, murder and war and poverty and hunger and all of that. And what's going to fix all of that is progress, science, knowledge. We're going to get better and better and better and keep fixing more and more and more things. And eventually, we're going to create paradise. Uh, and again, uh, particularly the, the new atheist will say that the enemy of humanity is religion. If science is the cure, then religion is the problem. And you, you can see, right, that's that same pitting of science against religion. They're, they're, they're innately at war. That's that assumption. Okay, the next belief is humanism. Sometimes it's referred to as secular humanism. You, you've probably heard that term before. Humanism is a philosophical position, and it affirms humanity's basic goodness and self-sufficiency. Okay, we don't need religion to be better. Again, in, in most cases, religion gets in the way. And when you combine humanism with progressivism, you get the idea that we are going to save ourselves. We're going to save ourselves with knowledge and with progress. We're going to fix everything. Now, the greatest single value of humanism is personal liberty. Okay? People should be free to do whatever they want that doesn't interfere with someone else's personal freedom. That's the greatest value. That's the most important thing in humanism. Anyone or anything that interferes with that freedom is immoral. Okay, any question about those three beliefs? Materialism, progressivism, and humanism? It's a position that affirms humanity's basic goodness and sufficiency. We don't need God. We just need ourselves. We're good enough. We're enough. We are enough to make the world a better place. Okay. Uh, let's go ahead and now what we're going to do is talk about why atheism is so opposed to religion. And again, this is not particularly Christianity. This is actually all religion, okay? Though again, because we are Christian, it's going to feel like a personal attack, okay? So just brace yourself. Okay, first of all, a lot of atheists will say that all religion is is a crutch for weak people. Okay, the world's too scary or something like that, or you, 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 aren't, you aren't a good person on your own, and so you need religion. You need God. You need someone to... to you know, basically like a nightlight so the monster under the bed doesn't get you. Uh, following Karl Marx, many atheists will point out that religion is a tool that powerful people use to control less powerful people. Karl Marx called it the opiate of the masses. It's what keeps all of the poor plebs sated, right? If life's hard right now, that's okay. Don't try to change it. Just wait till you go to heaven. And Mar Marx's point was that that lets the powerful people who are causing all of the injustice continue to be in power and to cause injustice. And then they so so they would point to something like also like uh, slave owners would tell their slaves, well, don't don't revolt. Just be a good Christian, and then you'll have heaven when you die. Uh, another, and this again goes back to the progressivism, 
religion is just it's primitive superstition. It's what we had before we had science. When we didn't know why it rained, we needed religion. But now we have science, and so we don't need religion anymore. Uh, they'll also point out that religion is divisive. Instead of bringing people together, it creates in-group and out-group. It creates wars. It creates division. Uh, and then one of the last, uh, one of the other critiques that you'll hear often is that religion is actually responsible for a lot of moral failure. So they'll point to the Catholic priest scandals or the, you know, the, uh, the televangelist uh, scandals of the 80s and 90s, right? Uh, or, the, again, this is where you'll just hear religious people aren't any better than anyone else. And, and, and it, can go from a, it can go from a one, you know, this, this, could be, this could be a whole scale. It could be one person was mean to me one time. And, again, I don't mean that tritely. I mean, like, maybe, you know, someone abused me or something like that. But a, a religious person hurt me all the way up to, you know, fill in the blank how many wars we've ever had have been fought in the name of religion, right? So it could be from the smallest scale of the individual up to like massive generational, cultural, uh, you know, religion. Religion doesn't actually make people any better. Okay. Uh, now, what I want to point out before we move on is that uh, none of these are totally wrong. Okay. All of them are valid critiques of the way some people are religious. Okay, there are people who turn to religion because they need some kind of a crutch. That's not good, and it's not healthy, but it's true. Okay. Religion, ha Christianity, has been used lots in history to manipulate people and to oppress people. That's not right, and it's not good, but it's true. Uh, we did have religion before we had science. That's a, a timeline in history. Book will show you that. But it's a false dichotomy to pit them against each other and to say that science supersedes religion, which we'll talk about more in a little bit. But but again, it, it is purely fact. If someone says, "Well, you know, religion was around before science," we're like, "Yep, that you are a good student of history. That's true." Uh, it is also true that religions create division. Again, I think probably all of us have been on uh, probably both the giving and the receiving end of that. And it's not nice and it's not fun, but it's, it's true. And then like, who, who can deny the moral failures? So it would be good for us to hear these critiques and to say, okay, I don't, I don't like to admit that those things are true, but they are true. And it doesn't do me any good to deny them, particularly if I'm honestly seeking truth. It doesn't do me any good to hide these things or pretend like they didn't happen, because they did happen. They're real. Uh, and that brings us to probably the most, uh, maybe like the, the, biggest, the biggest critique that atheists have of religion. Um, atheists will say that the problem with religion is that it cannot be questioned. That people who are religious put their religion, God, their scripture, whatever, above reproach and say, you cannot ask questions. 
You can't question God. You can't question the Bible. You can't have doubts about things. And they point out that anything that, is, that becomes above reproach or above question or above critique becomes a dangerous weapon. And so, though there are many atheists who are very reasonable and interested in a, in, a, in a good, kind discussion, there are also a lot of atheists who will go right here and they'll say, you know what, um, like religion is just so bad that it just needs to be gotten rid of altogether. Any religion, all religion. So with, with that in mind, we need to ask, like, how can we build bridges? What kinds of conversations can we initiate that will begin to build bridges between us and atheists? Uh, first, and again, I already mentioned this, but we need to hear their critique. We need to not be afraid of the skeletons in our own closet. And in fact, I would say that we probably need to have a better handle on them than the atheists that we're going to be conversing with. We need to understand them better. We need to, we need to know them better. Because they're ours. And we need to be honest about that. We can't have truth without honesty. Uh, we also... Oops, sorry, I went the wrong way. We also need to say that our beliefs are not beyond critique. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, I am skeptical that I am the first person in the entire history of the world to have everything about God 100% right. I mean, maybe I am, and I'll get a super cool prize when I, when I get there. But I doubt it. Strongly doubt it. And I doubt that anyone else in this room has that either. I don't think that the Nazarene denomination is the first one in 2,000 years of church history to have everything nailed. Now, the problem is, I don't, know what I, I don't know what stuff I got wrong. Just like you don't know what stuff you had wrong. If you knew, then you'd believe the right thing. So because of that, and unless you are willing to say that you have a monopoly on truth and you have everything 100% right, then you need to allow that your beliefs are open to critique. That you are open to being wrong about things because you want to be right about stuff. And the reason that I can say that confidently as a pastor is because I believe one of the things that I am 100% right about is that Jesus is the truth. And so I don't have to be afraid of questioning things or critiquing things because if I find out I'm wrong about something and I get more right about it, I'm just getting closer to Jesus because he's truth. And so, uh, so I can, for instance, if I'm approaching an atheist and they say, you know what, I've got a big problem, this idea that there could be a virgin birth. I can say, you know what, I, under I get that. That's, that's like a weird claim. I mean, again, we say it only happened once. There's only one time in history that a woman who never had intercourse got pregnant and gave birth to God. I mean, that is a fairly astounding claim. And, and, and so I can say, I can understand how you could have some doubts about that. And you know what? Like, it's a weird enough claim that we probably need to figure out if that's something that could be true. And I can seek whether that is true or not. And I don't have to be afraid of what I find out. Because I believe Jesus is the truth. I believe, I believe that he was born of a virgin. And if he was, 
then that's what we're going to find out. And so I don't have to be, I don't have to be afraid of that. I don't, have to, I don't have to put up barriers and say, what do you mean you don't believe in the virgin birth, you dang pagan? Like, what are you, stupid? It says it right there in the Bible. I don't have to do that. I don't have to be afraid. I can, I can be gracious. So, again, all of that to say, our beliefs are not, cannot be beyond critique. Unless you want to say that you have a monopoly on truth, and then we have a different set of problems. Uh, both Christians and atheists value seeking truth. The great commandment that God gave us in Deuteronomy and that Jesus reaffirmed as the great commandment is love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. That is why Christianity has always had a very strong intellectual tradition. That's why some of the greatest philosophers and the greatest thinkers of all human history have been Christians. Because we believe that our minds are good gifts from God and that God doesn't want us to just sit there and not use them. That's why Christians love science, because science is a tool that we have that we can explore God's creation with. And it's a, it's a, it's a mental tool. It is a tool that we have in our minds. I meant to, I didn't put it in the slides because I forgot, but uh, one, if you were here last week, we talked about how how as Wesleyan, uh, in, we're in the Wesleyan theological tradition and how we know truth, we have four sources. We have scripture, which is the highest, but then we also have uh, tradition, we have our own experiences, and we have reason. We believe that we can use our minds and that God gave us our minds and that God, ex like, that things make sense. And so reason is a tool that we can use and, and we can seek truth and we want to seek truth. That is, that is an important thing that Christians value. And uh, I can tell you that makes a big, that's a big deal for atheists. Because something that they really, really value is knowing truth. And so if you're willing to enter into a truth-seeking relationship with them, that's a huge first step. Uh, last, for both of us, morality really matters. Again, something that a lot of atheists have a problem with within, the, within all religious traditions is, uh, is how it doesn't change people. How, and no, this isn't a new thing that none of you have heard before, right? How religious people claim to be better than everyone else, but they're not. Then we come back and we say, well, we don't claim to be better than everyone else, but you know, some of us do. And so atheists really, really want the world to be a better place. And, and so do we. Now we disagree on how we get there. We disagree on what that entails, but like we both agree that kids shouldn't go hungry. We both agree that less war would actually be a great thing. We agree that uh, it's probably not a great thing to abuse the environment. So, so that can be a great place to begin. And, and I would also say it's probably a place where there's a lot of misconceptions on both sides of the fence. You know, a lot of people's uh, a lot of one of one of the loudest critiques about atheism that you hear from people is that uh, they're all just you know immoral and they just want to, they just want the freedom to do whatever they want to do, you know. And that uh, well, you find out with a lot of uh, that's of course that's true with some people, but but a lot of the really serious atheists that's not at all why they're atheists and they actually have a very strong uh, idea of what's right and wrong, and it may not be the same as ours, but but it's there and we can we can that can be a building block. 
All right, any questions about those? We're going to move on to the dis disagreements, which again are numerous also. Okay, so here's where we disagree. Here's where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. First of all, uh, you will hear atheists claim that they are objective because science is objective and they don't have a bias, they don't have a set of presuppositions that they're operating with, whereas Christians are always trying to prove the Bible. And the problem with that is there's no such thing as ob objectivity. All of us come from a particular place and from a particular time and we are raised in a, in a certain way and we cannot help but speak out of that. That cannot help but shape our assumptions. And if you've ever, if you've ever been into another culture that's really, really different from ours, you know what I'm talking about. You look around and you're like, I don't understand any of this. I don't understand why anyone's doing anything. Um, but to them, it's totally normal, and you're the weird one, right? But they don't know that they're being weird, and we don't know that we're being weird. We're just being what we know to be. But that's what I mean. There's no such thing as, like, there's no, what's, the, what's the, uh, the neutral culture? What country can you go to in the world where that's just the way people are when they're just being people? Like, there's no such place. So there's, there's no such thing as objectivity. When, when, an, when an atheist person is looking at a particular set of evidence, they have an agenda. And, and so do we. And we, we, it's good to just acknowledge that and be able to work past that together, but, but that's a big place where we disagree and we say, look, uh, I'm certainly not objective when I talk about religion. I have a huge agenda. My agenda is Jesus. I'm willing to admit that, and I'm willing to say that that totally cover, colors how I view everything. But so does, a, so does an atheist. Or, again, or a Muslim or a Mormon or a Jewish person or anyone else that we've looked at, right? We all have a set of presuppositions. We all have a set of ideas that colors how we look at stuff. And we need to understand that before we move forward. Um, and, again, you'll, you'll get a lot of pushback from an atheist person about that, but, but that, that's real. Okay, so now we're going to kind of go back through some of their key beliefs and talk about where we are. First of all, we disagree about the nature of nature. Uh, this is the materialism versus, uh, I guess the best word for it would be supernaturalism, right? We believe that there is more than just the material world. We believe that there are supernatural things. We believe that we have a soul. We believe that things like love and honor and uh, and courage are not just things that happen in our brain, but they're actually uh, they're actually reflections of the image of God. That because God is loving and courageous and just, that we can be those things too. Uh, now, particularly, this gets into that that disagreement between uh, science and religion, and. What I would say is this, is that the way we understand science today is not, uh, the way we understand religion and science, their relationship today, is the difference between the functional world and the material world. Or, in other words, why things are or what things are. Okay? Science is really good at telling us what. What is this? Well, it's gravity. How does it work? Well, there's this formula. You know? What happened to that leg? Well, it broke because they fell, gravity. Well, how do we fix it? Well, if you do this and then put it like this and then wrap it up like that, then there are these natural processes in the body that will heal it over time. 
Okay. Uh, science is no good at talking about why things happen. Why is stuff here? Why were we created? What, what's the purpose of our lives? Well, science doesn't know. Science doesn't care. Those are religious questions. And when we pit science against religion, when we, when we pull religion into the what category, and we start trying to answer the same questions uh, that science tries to answer, science is going to win that. Because it's like, you know, I, it's sort of like uh, trying to use a hammer to change your oil. Like, you might be able to get it done, I guess. But you're probably not going to be able to drive a car afterwards. Because that's, that's not what it's for. Uh... The Bible is not a science, a science textbook. That's probably obvious, right? The Bible is not trying to answer scientific questions. The Bible is trying to answer religious questions. The Bible wants to teach us who we are and why we are and, and what God expects of us and how we are to live in our lives. And the Bible is addressing things like character and community and responsibility. And these are not, these are not scientific categories. Uh, Christianity, if, if we want to engage our world with the gospel, we cannot afford to be anti-science. And, I mean, the Church of the Nazarene is not anti-science, and I'm very grateful for that. The Church of the Nazarene has an intentionally, I would almost say an intentionally agnostic view toward science, where we say, you know what, there's a lot of good scientific questions, and that's not what our church is about. You can be a scientist, and we hope you're a scientist, and we hope you figure that stuff out. But, uh, for instance, I... One of, the, one of the coolest things for me about the church is you can believe in evolution and be a Nazarene. That's not true of every church. Some churches take a real hard line and say, nope, those things, those things can't coexist. And, and the church of the Nazarene doesn't take a stance either way. If you want to be a six-day creationist, you can do that and be a Nazarene. Uh, if you want to be an evolutionist and say, well, this evolutionary process that's being explained these days happen and God guided it, you can do that and be a Nazarene. As long as you believe God created. As, you, as long as you believe the, the, what matters is why we're here, not necessarily how we got here. But why are we here? What is our responsibility? What is our calling? What is our purpose? These are, these are the things that our church speaks about and has very strong statements about. Um, there are a lot of, and I was one of those, I was a kid that just loved to argue about like evolution and creation. I had all the books and I could, I, it disrupted my biology class in high school and all that kind of stuff. And the thing that I figured out way too late was that I won a lot of fights, but I lost a lot of friends. And if it was all about me being the smartest person in the room and feeling real good about myself for how much I knew, well, mission accomplished. But if it was actually presenting people with a compelling picture of what Jesus looks like in the 21st century, I totally failed. 20th century. I went to high school in the 1900s. So, um, I know, right? So we, we just need to be very careful. And again, I, now I'm going to go out on a limb. I, I know that there are a few scientists in here, but I think a lot of us probably are not scientists. I am not, I am not a scientist. I'm a theologian. I, I spent a lot more time in the humanities than I did in the sciences. Okay, and so there's a lot of stuff I don't know. You know, I, I have people on both sides come up to me and say, here's, here's all the reasons evolution can't be true. And I'm like, oh, those sound like really good reasons. And someone else goes like, here's all the reasons it has to be. And I'm like, oh, that also sounds pretty good. And if I were a biologist, 
I'd probably have a lot stronger opinion on that. But I'm not. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a pastor. <laughs> and so uh, I go for, well, whether you believe in evolution or not, I want to know how you're trying to look like Jesus today. I want to know how your life is bearing evidence of the gospel in the world and how people can know you and know that Jesus is raised from the dead and, has, and you have victory over sin and over death. That's, that's what I want to know. And we can talk about evolution sometime too, probably. Now, here's what's interesting, particularly with the discussion about materialism. And this is where it comes down to science. Science is not, uh, science has not chosen a side, okay? Both materialists who say that all, all, everything is only the natural world and theists who say, oh, no, 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 the natural world's cool and all, but there's a lot more than just the natural world. We both use science. Again, there are just some tremendous Christian scientists, and there have been tons of uh, amazing scientific discoveries made by Christians. We're not afraid of it. We don't have to be afraid of it. And there is a place for science inside of the Christian worldview. Again, love God with all of your mind. Science is a rational tool. It's a tool of the mind. And we can use it, and we can explore, and we can learn things. Um, but there are claims that materialism makes about reality. And this is, where, this is where it can get really confusing because science can end up becoming uh, a religion. So you, you do have people who try to make uh, existential claims about humanity based on materialism. They say, well, there is no God, therefore humans should be like this. And they go, whoa, whoa, whoa. That, like, that's a religious claim. And science can't help you. And if you want to be a materialist, that's okay. You can, you can do that. But you're being religious at this point. That's not an objective scientific claim that you can put in a beaker and test. So, so learning to distinguish what kind of disagreement, what kind of argument you're having can be really, really helpful. Um, and again, you just need to be aware uh, of the difference. And, and most importantly, uh, don't be anti-science. Okay, other places we disagree. Uh, human nature. Atheists buy into humanism, which say that humans are good and humans are enough. And all we need for this world is people. We say, no, actually humans are fallen. And no matter how good we try to be, we cannot save ourselves. No matter what kind of cool machine we build, it's not going to rescue us from what we've gotten ourselves into. We are fallen, and we, we are not sufficient to save ourselves or to save our world. We need God. Next, we would disagree about the nature of community. And again, this one, can't say a lot about it yet because this, this whole idea of an atheist community is so new and still forming. But we don't think that communion is meaningful just because we all did it at the same time. We believe that there is a spiritual component to the communion meal, that it's not just bread and juice. That when we are participating in that meal, we are in a in a supernatural way, communing with God and with each other. And so to, to remove God from the ritual removes the meaning of the ritual. Uh, fourthly, 
we disagree about the nature of salvation. So again, progressivism says that because humans are sufficient, we can save the world. Science will rescue us. Science will fix everything. Science will heal us. And we say, well, it's true that the world is getting better. I mean, there are fewer hungry people today than there were 300, 400, 500 years ago. Uh, the overall global standard of living is going up. There's still lots of places of poverty, but again, overall, if you look at the big, 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 big picture, sure, the world, you know, infant mortality rate is dropping, uh, there's fewer diseases. So, yeah, sure, the world's getting better, but people aren't. There's the same rot in the core of the human heart that there always has been. Uh, in fact, the 20th century saw the worst atrocities that we've ever seen in history, and they were they were committed by people who were not theists. Hitler, Stalin, Mao. These were people that were explicitly, in most cases, atheistic. And so you can't say that those atrocities were because of God or because of a belief in God. You can't say that religion is what caused all of that. You have to say that there's something different going on. And we don't blame atheism for that. We blame sin for that. We say, we say that the thing is, the world can get as good as it wants to get, and we hope it continues to get better, but that doesn't fix people. We are still broken at a fundamental level. Our hearts are still bent away from God, and only God can fix that. No amount of progress. Again, we can't, we can't build a machine that fixes our hearts. Metaphorically, we've got pacemakers, I know, but... Now, it is true that so far the worst atrocities in the 21st century have been religious radicals. But again, that, that just further confirms that the problem isn't religion, because we can point at a religious people and say that they've got a problem. We can point at religious people and say that they have a problem. We say people are the problem. So we would, we would firm, obviously, this it's so obvious it almost goes without saying, but we would obviously reject the idea that the problem is religion. Um, Next, we disagree about the nature of the end. And this is really wrapped up in what we just talked about, but we don't believe that the world's just going to keep getting better and better and better until we all live in a paradise. We believe that we believe that there has to be a decisive point where God comes back and fixes everything, where the work that Jesus began in the resurrection is finally finished. Where God finally draws a line, a hard line and says no more injustice. No more sin, no more evil, no more of this stuff. Um, because again, the, the world can get as good as it wants to get, but until, until that, uh, people are still broken. And then finally, we disagree about the nature of authority. And this is, this is a, a tough one, but, but uh, you know, again, an atheist would say that the highest authority is human reason. And we would agree that human reason is a good thing we would agree that you don't have to be scared of asking questions, that you don't have to be scared of having doubts, that all of these things are good, but our highest authority is God, and human reason is one tool that we have, and even it must be under the authority of the scriptures, under the authority of the church, under the authority of God. Now, 
Uh, oh, we got just about the right amount of time left. I want to talk to you about the biggest problem that both of our positions face. The single most challenging thing for an atheist to explain is the ground for morality. Okay? If everything is just material, if everything is just atoms, then there's no real difference between a person and a hot dog and a tree and a sonic cup. And it's all just different arrangements of atoms. There is no soul. There's no intrinsic value. Intrinsic doesn't exist. There's no such thing as intrinsic. Okay? And so, right now, I mean, right now in the literature, there's a lot of energy being spent by atheists trying to figure out, well, if we, if we live in a materialistic universe, how do we explain why, why you shouldn't hurt people? Why, if you're just an animal, if you want something, you shouldn't just take it, if you have the power to do it. And that's a, that's a very difficult thing for atheists to defend. Um, it's something that, that there hasn't really been a good satisfactory explanation for. Uh, does anyone have an idea what the most challenging theological position that Christians take is? Kind of the flip side, the hardest thing for us to explain or the hardest thing for us to defend really, really well. Yeah, it's the problem of evil. Explaining why bad things happen to good people. Explaining why if God is all-powerful, God allows evil to exist. Um, now again, that doesn't mean there's not some good explanations, but I'm telling you, this, this is the hardest point. And, and in, a, in a conversation, or less charitably, in a debate with atheists, this is the jugular. Okay? And frankly, in my experience as a pastor, this is by far the biggest question Christians have for their own faith. And rightfully so. So you just need, you need to be aware of that. You need to be prepared for that. You need to understand that that's a question that's going to come up. And hands down, particularly with atheists, the most powerful weapon that you're going to have in your arsenal is, I don't know, being really honest about the limitations of your own knowledge and your own experience. You have to say, I don't know, why don't we figure that out? Oh, that's a good question. Would you be interested in reading a book about that with me? I don't know. Who do you think we could ask? I doubt that you are going to become an all-star super debater about every single possible thing that could possibly be in the world, unless you happen to have a PhD in philosophy, in which case, why didn't you tell me that sooner? Because I would have had you teach this one. But far and away, this, this will be hard, and, and you should feel the freedom to say, that's a really tough question, and I'm not sure. But there's some good literature out there, and we can, we can explore that together. Now, in your conversations with atheists, uh, I would challenge you to have a lot of grace, okay? Atheists will often do the same things that they re accuse religious people of. So, for instance, uh, I, I have a buddy who uh, st has studied atheism as, as kind of as a religion. And he said that, you know, you, you can go to an atheist meeting and there will be atheists there who are closed-minded. They're not interested. They're, they're, their atheism is beyond critique. 
They're not interested in considering whether there might be a God. In the same way, some religious people are not concerning uh, with considering there might not be. And so you have a sort of fundamentalist kind of atheism, but they would never call it fundamentalism, even though that's what it is. It bears all of the same hallmarks as religious fundamentalism. Uh, you might find atheist people who are very evangelistic. They try to convert people to atheism. They hand you literature. Here, you need to read this. I think it'll, I think it'll answer all your questions. Right? Again, just like what religious people do, but they would never call it evangelism. And if you, if you start with that, you just cause a fight with them. Uh, that's why I say when you're having these discussions, just you need to have a lot of grace. Uh, you, need, you need to be prepared to be offended. You need to be prepared to hear some, some hurtful and nasty things. You, you hopefully won't, but you need to be prepared that that's a real possibility, and you need to be bigger than that. You need to be able to respond with grace, not with nastiness. Uh, and, and I would challenge you to remember the Sagan principle. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. You are a Christian, and you believe some crazy stuff. Some stuff that, again, is so crazy that we say it only happened once in the entire course of the history of the universe. That's how, that's how unique and, and, and weird it is. And so you need to be prepared to provide some extraordinary proof for that. And, and there, I think, in my mind, there is no greater proof than living out the life of Jesus consistently in front of an atheist friend. Proving to them by your example, and as you're exploring truth with your words, right? But proving to them by your example that Jesus' resurrection from the dead freed you from sin and changed you, and you're a new creation. Uh, this is an irony, I think, and it was something as I was, as I was preparing this I couldn't get away from. That the best way to engage an atheist is probably not with rational argumentation. I mean, it has a place. Okay, it does. Certainly it does. But building a relationship and establishing mutual respect with that person is going to go a lot further than just being smarter than they are. So, very quickly, let's talk about how not to build a friendship. And we've already talked about a lot of these, so we can move pretty fast. First of all, don't assume that atheists are immoral or, again, that they just have no sense of moral code because they don't believe in God and they just do whatever they want. Probably is not true. Don't lead with arguments. Again, winning an argument often loses friends. So as much as you can, keep, keep your, you know, simmer down, keep, keep things cool. Um, discuss, be open to discussion, and that's fine. Uh, be ready to do some homework. I would say golden rule, which we keep coming back to in here, do not offer your atheist friend resources unless you are prepared to receive resources. Okay? If you're going to hand them a Lee Strobel book, be prepared to read some Richard Dawkins. Okay? Uh, and again, lastly, don't, don't be defensive. Particularly here in the Midwest, religion is a very painful topic for a lot of atheists. And so they've got, all, they've got all kinds of hurts and wounds. And if you are trying to build a truth-seeking relationship with them, you're probably going to be the recipient of some venom. And the best response to that is not to be venomous back. It's to, to take it and say, you know what, I'm really sorry that that person hurt you that way. I, I can't imagine how I'd react in that sense. Or maybe you can't imagine, then you can share that. 
you know, some, some, some atheists, it, it's cost them relationships with their families. Uh, it, it's cost them uh, friendships. It's cost them a lot. And, and they, they have a lot of wounds. And you should be really focused on not giving them more. Okay, if you happen to go hang out with atheists, like in an atheist meeting or something like that, very briefly. First of all, be respectful. That goes without saying. I'm not worried about any of you not being respectful. Okay. Uh, second, be a student. Come prepared to listen and learn. For, first, not, not only, but just show up there, be ready to listen. Uh, also, you need to be prepared that there's probably going to be some aggressive people there. Not all of the atheists there will be aggressive, but there's probably one or two people that if they find out you're a Christian, they're going to come out guns a-blazing. And you need to be prepared for that. And then finally, uh, as much as possible, don't, don't lead with your faith that first time. Okay? If they ask you why you're there, you can say, you know, I'm a Christian. I've just got some questions. Just trying to, you know, figure some stuff out or something like that. But, you know, don't walk in with a cross out and holy water sprinkling around and, you know. I, again, I'm not, I'm not worried that any of you are going to do that. But. Uh, you know, Wright State has a group that meets. Um, you can actually, there's, there's usually a chapter or two in every town. Yeah, yeah. Like any other social club, they'll they have a night and they meet at a town hall or something like that. And um, so, all right, uh, we are out of time. If you have questions about atheism, I have a friend who'd be happy to answer them. Uh, you can contact me any of those ways. Uh, I'd like to pray for us, and then we can we got out right on time. We got through all of our information. So next week we are doing. Moralistic therapeutic deism, which is sort of the more agnostic people, the people who are like spiritual but not religious, things like that. So, uh, again, it's another one that's not really a, like a defined group of people. You can't go to one of those churches or something like that. But a lot of people, particularly in our area, fall into that category. So it's one that we really need to address. Let's pray together, and then we can head out. God, we're grateful for this opportunity that we have together and to... Uh, consider some people that we know and that we are connected with who do not believe in you. And we understand that there are lots of different people who reach that place uh, from lots of different paths, but uh, we also know that you love them and that you created them and that you died for them. And so we ask that as we leave this place, we would be mindful of those persons that we would consider how we can cultivate a relationship with them that's founded on truth and on honesty. And we ask that, uh, that you would help us to demonstrate to those friends what it looks like to love you with all of our minds. What it looks like uh, to be so infused with the power of your resurrection, to be, have the Spirit so active in our lives that they can see the evidence with their own eyes that you are real and that you are active and that you have changed us. We thank you so much uh, that we do not have to hide from questions and doubts, but that we can engage them fully and, uh, and that you are bigger than our doubts and bigger than our questions, and that your love extends uh, far beyond anything that we could, could imagine. Uh, we thank you for all of these things, and we pray them in the name of your son, Jesus. Thank you, everyone. Uh, we'll see you all next week.